Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Every week, it's my goal to share a story of someone's journey through their life in Financial Vineyard. We take you from their roots to the journey of their vines and the influences in the air that have helped craft their delicious lives. Like wine, life and finances have different palettes that should be celebrated and not judged. Welcome to this edition of Wine and Dime with Amy Irvine. Today, I have three very special guests. They are all financial planners in the profession that deal with people who have stock options. That's their specialty. I'm thrilled to have these three guests on here. We've got Meg Bartelt, Chloe Moore, and Sam Dean. All again, like I said, financial planners who specialize in working with stock options. Don't try to do this alone. Stock options are very confusing. And as you'll hear as we talk through it, there are so many little tax nuances and pros and cons between the different type of equity compensation that we really want to be here for clients that that have these kinds of special techniques that they can use and tools that they can use. So grab your favorite beverage, sit on back and sip away while you listen. Well, the gang is all here today for a, a special, I say a special edition of Wine and Dime. We are really thrilled to have three other financial planners joining us today. And as I said in the intro, I think your socks are going to be knocked off with all their knowledge and experience. But before we dig into our special guests, I really want to ask the, the question I ask everybody else, if they have a favorite wine they'd like to share with you. Meg, how about you? Uh, for me, my favorite wine is about a $5 screw cap bottle of red wine from Trader Joe's. Economy and good taste. <laughs> I feel as if the screw cap is actually highly correlated with good wine for some reason. They've actually done studies on that and shown that it's actually not a bad thing. You know, like some people say if it's not corked, it's not good wine, but it's actually not a bad thing. Um, yeah. Chloe, how about you? I'm also a big fan of Trader Joe's and, and an expensive <laughs> wine. Uh, I'd, I'd say my favorite is, is I love Zinfandels and Red Blends. Like Red Zinfandels? Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You like the earthy taste then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, big fan of Zinfandels too. Uh, Sam, how about you? Um, so I am not... I don't think I'm not sure if I have a favorite, but I do have one that I just happen to drink pretty frequently, and that would be uh, Cabernet. Any particular brand? 
Uh, I like Wolfer Estates. I'm from Long Island and they have a vineyard that's uh, in, not necessarily in the area, but on Long Island as well, over in the Hamptons. And I've, I've been there a few times. And so that's usually my go-to. Another New York wine lover. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your favorites so people can look them up. And, and if they're close to a Trader Joe's, now they know that they can go look up tonight. <laughs> we like economy. We like good wine and economy price. Just because it's inexpensive doesn't mean it's bad, right? <laughs> well, the, the crux of this podcast today is really to dig in a little bit about um, stock options. But before we do that, I would love for each of these uh, guests to take time to introduce themselves and, and you'll understand why I've asked them as they do. Um, just a little bit of background and, and also who they work with as a general rule. So if you're looking for a financial planner, then um, one of these folks might be a good fit for you. So again, Meg, just because you're in order on my screen, I'd love for you to go first if you if you wouldn't mind. Sure thing. Uh, my name is Meg Bartelt and uh, my firm's name is Flow Financial Planning. So you can find me online at flowfp.com. And uh, our firm is about four and a half years old and we specialize in working with women in their early to mid careers in the tech industry. Uh, I used to be in the tech industry myself. That was my first career for you know my 20s and my early 30s, uh, which sort of made it a, a natural choice of, of focus for my firm. We're a team of three, uh, all located in, it's a virtual firm, but we, uh, all of us team members are located uh, in sort of the greater Seattle area. So you've added somebody recently. No, <laughs> since we last spoke. Uh, yeah, Maddie uh, okay. joined us a little over a year ago as our associate planner. So yeah, we have Janice, Maddie, and me. Well, congratulations. And I know you've done quite a few, uh, I think, LinkedIn um, events around stock options as well. And having worked in that, you actually received them. So you know it from the receiving side too. Yes, my husband and I each did have some, some level of success with equity comp while we were in tech. Uh, and yeah, uh, I mean, Chloe and I have appeared on at least one webinar together about stock compensation. Um, it, it is really, it's, it is a growing trend, I would say, in sort of the financial planner, financial advisor space to have this kind of expertise. It's not particularly easy to develop because mm -hmm. there is no, you know, if you want to become a retirement specialist, there are degrees you can pursue, there are designations you can pursue. Uh, there is no analog in the equity compensation mm -hmm. space. So it really is just cobbling together your own educational experience. Um, Chloe, Sam, and I are actually in a study group together um, in which we're reading through a particular book uh, about equity comp. And uh, we've done that. You know, I've been in other study groups focused on it and particular website, mystockoptions.com is a great website mm -hmm. to learn about it. Uh, but it really is cobbling together some academic exposure uh, and then learning from your work with clients because every company approaches equity comp differently. Yeah. And we'll get into some of those things. Uh, um, some of the things that are sort of blind spots, I guess is probably the best word for it that, uh, that over the years we we've run into. And I, and I think, you know, e even on the tax side and, and how some of the tax preparers don't know what, what, how you're supposed to claim that on your tax return necessarily. So we'll dig into some of that. Um, Chloe, um, why don't you go ahead and, and give your background and introduce yourself? 
Sure. I'm, uh, my name's Chloe. I'm the founder of Financial Staples, which is a virtual fee-only financial planning firm uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. And I serve clients uh, nationwide. And um, yeah, and my clients are typically tech employees uh, in their 30s and 40s. And I'm, I'm, I work with a lot of underserved populations. So a lot of women, people of color, members of LGBTQ community uh, who all work in tech. And you've been doing this for, what did you say, how many years now? Yeah, I've been in the industry for 16 years. Yeah, I thought it was quite a, quite a, yeah. I don't want to say quite a while, but I know <laughs> <laughs> I was born into this industry too, so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sam, how about you? You're on mute, Sam. Hey, hey, okay. Amy. Thanks, thanks, thanks for having me. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm a financial advisor and I too uh, run an investment advisory firm called Dean Wealth Management. And we specialize in financial planning for millennials in technology. And so um, like Chloe and Meg, uh, my clients usually have uh, stock options or some sort of equity comp complexity. Um, you know, I work with startup employees who are experiencing um, an acquisition, IPOs or some other liquidity events. And again, most of my clients, I would say, fall within the late 20s to early 40s. As a side note, I'll have this edited out, but Sam, you need to do some sort of recordings. You have a perfect voice. <laughs> You've got like the perfect podcast or radio voice. I it's have probably to say. the mic. It's probably the mic. I don't no, know. I think it's your voice. <laughs> so I, you start you, talking. I agree. <laughs> like, thank you. Thank you. Man, you could ring it in. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate <Okay>. that. <laughs> Um, maybe we'll actually leave it in the podcast. Who knows? Um, okay. So, so thank you for taking the time to introduce yourselves just a little bit. One of the things that I think is really important for people to understand is stock options are not one size fits all. There are different kinds of stock options. There's, um, there's stock options for publicly traded companies. There's stock options for non-publicly traded companies, uh, um, which are very different. <laughs> there's RSUs, there's all sorts of, I, there's ISOs, like all of those different terms that we have, we toss around like they're, you know, our common day language. For a lot of people, they don't understand at all what, what the differences are or what they even mean from a tax perspective. So I thought it would be great if we could sort of dig into some of those concepts and talk through those different types, even just starting from the beginning, talking through the different type of, of stock options. Maybe each of you could take one type and talk about the tax differences and pros and cons uh, of some of them. Anybody want to go first? I'll go first to say that I appreciate that you just enumerated a whole bunch of different kinds of equity comp that someone can receive, because one of the things I notice is that the term stock option is is the one term that people tend to throw around to just mean any kind of stock compensation mm. that they're getting from their from their company, um, and the different times are very different, uh, and and the fact that people just seem to focus on that one term stock option can really get in the way of them understanding how their stock compensation truly works. But I'll let Chloe or Sam take their. Yeah, I, I think I think that that's that's a great point. You know, when you have uh, equity compensation, right, and you, you you have some some sort of ownership in the company, and it allows you to participate uh, financially and benefit from your employees' growth. You know, that ownership makes all the difference, right? And so it's important to understand exactly what you own, um, particularly because there are different vehicles in which you can be awarded equity compensation. So, you know, knowing having an inventory of of what you own, you know, to having a spreadsheet of, you know, exercise options, uh, vested 
vested equity in, as well as unvested equity and just really getting a good idea of, of how much your company stocks uh, contributes to your overall net worth. Um, these are things that are, that are incredibly important. It, it really just begins with awareness and taking the time to uh, take inventory of, of your equity compensation. Yeah. And generally speaking, um, I'll say there's there's kind of three different types um, or the most common three types uh, is restricted stock units or RSUs. And then there's stock options. Um, and so there's a couple of different types of stock options, uh, non-qualified stock options and incentive stock options. Uh, and then there's also uh, there's also what people are probably heard of as an employee stock purchase plan or an ESPP. And that's the ability to you know, buy equity uh, mm-hmm. in your company. So, so yeah, there's there's different different types for sure. And it's, it's helpful to understand what you have. Uh, because each one has different tax consequences. So let's dig into that just a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Chloe, you brought up the um, ESPP plans that exist. Those are probably, I think, the easiest to explain in, yeah. in most respects because they're just, there's something you can purchase, right? But there's there's usually discounts to that. Yes. Yeah, so it's basically a program that allows you to purchase a company stock uh, for a discount. And that discount is usually you know, anywhere from 5% to up to 15% uh, in most cases. And so, you, yeah, you just purchase, you, you have the opportunity to purchase that stock uh, in your company at a discount uh, from the regular market value. So just as an example, if the stock costs $100 and the discount is 15%, you'd actually be buying it for 85 And then when you hold it for a year or longer, that would be taxation. Yeah, that can that can get a little complicated. But, but gen- generally speaking, the yes, it, you purchase at eighty five eighty five dollars a share instead of a hundred if there's a fifteen percent discount. Um, and then that fifteen percent discount is, is taxable to you. And then depending on how long you hold the stock, then any mm-hmm. appreciation beyond that is, is taxable as well. Like how I lead you to it down that path. Sorry. (laughs) It's never that easy, right? (laughs) I will say that the taxation of ESPPs, in my opinion, is the most complicated tax treatment of all forms of stock compensation, um, which is a minor reason why my advice for ESPPs is typically max out your participation in it and then sell it immediately. It is the closest thing to free money you're going to get, uh, like guaranteed free money you're going to get in stock compensation. So what I'm hearing you say, Meg, just to clarify, is go ahead and make the purchase when it's a, when you're eligible to do so, but then turn around and sell it. As soon as those shares hit your account, that is my, yeah. my usual advice, sell them ASAP. And, and you're saying that because of the complexity in the tax behind it, as well as the ri- potential risk. Yes, the combination okay. of those two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So they might be the easiest to purchase and more the, the most eligible for employees to participate in. But from a tax perspective and com- complexity perspective, they're actually, you feel that they're actually more complex than some of the other vehicles. I do. Yes. Okay. So then moving up the, the sort of the complexity scale, would you agree that maybe non-qualified stock options might fall into that next or maybe RSUs? I think RSUs in public companies Yeah, yeah. is about, about the simpler, simplest you'll get. So let's, let's keep on that. Um, I want to talk about non-public companies in just a minute because I know that's a big deal that's happening right now. But when we talk about that public company, um, maybe Sam, maybe we, you'd like to take a moment to explain what what is an RSU? Yeah, sure. Um, so essentially, an RSU is is pretty much a, a promise um, of that company saying that if you uh, if you you know fulfill e- either uh, 
a performance-based goal or stay at the company for a certain amount of time, then we will award you with shares of the company. And so uh, let that not con- be confused with a restricted stock where in, with restricted stock, you're actually being awarded shares at grant versus RSUs. It's essentially just a piece of paper saying when you fulfilled such and such requirements, we will then be giving you the shares. And so it's not really in your possession. And uh, to sort of avoid all of the other nuances, I would say that's the biggest differences between uh, restricted stock and RSUs. And to even touch on what we were what we were just speaking about a few seconds ago with ESPPs, I think another cool thing about them that not all employers offer, if I'm not mistaken, is a look back feature where essentially you can get a yes, you can get a 15 percent discount on um, on the, the, the sales price on, on the price of the shares. But a look back feature allows you to either look back into the beginning of the period or the end of the period, and you'll get that 15% discount on whichever price is lower. And so not all companies offer those. So if you are sort of negotiating between different equity offers and both of the companies offer ESPPs and one has a look back feature and the other one doesn't, that's sort of an advantage uh, or pro rather that you can sort of uh, check off. And, and when you talk about, I want to sort of sidestep in a little bit, but you brought up a really good point about negotiating. When you're going to work for some of these employers that offer some of these, I almost said options, no pun intended, but some of these features, uh, you know, knowing that in advance is really important to actually ask those questions, right? I mean, that, that can be part of the negotiation process for your compensation, yeah, I mean, there, there, I think there, there are quite a few, it's funny, in, the, in our study group, we were just talking about the different things you could negotiate for. Um, and I think there are quite a few different, uh, I guess, pieces of equity compensation that you can or your overall offer that you can, maybe, you know, less salary for more equity or vice versa. But I'm, I'm not certain that the look back feature is something that you can negotiate for. I think that is more so plan specific. So the plan, entire plan is designed in a particular way for all employees. And so I, 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 don't, I haven't seen any situation where one employee can have a look back feature while the others can't. Mm-hmm. But so, for example, RSUs, though, looking at those restricted, um, sorry, now I'm saying restricted stock, looking at the, the RSUs from a standpoint of what you just said, taking less of a like a, a salary, but I'll mm-hmm. take more of the RSUs as, as a bonus to coming onto your company. That would be something that you can negotiate, especially if, especially if you're moving from one company to another and their, their compensation package is very different and they're trying to offer you less of a salary, then you may have higher negotiation with those RSUs going into employment with them. That's something yeah, you can ab- negotiate, correct? Absolutely. And I think at that point, it really just depends on what's more important for you. Um, so usually startups are strapped for cash. So you you may have more bargaining to say, well, hey, I, I'd like you know more equity and you don't have to pay me as much salary and take that risk because working for a startup is, is, is taking a risk. Um, and with you know the larger public companies, uh, I would say it's less of a, you know, I'm strapped for cash and it's it's more of a, you know, you're at a certain position um, within the company and you can just maybe negotiate for less salary because you believe in the company and you, you want more shares or something of the sort. Mm-hmm. And the taxation of RSUs, let's walk through that just a little bit, if you don't mind. Chloe, you want yeah. to take that? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm leading the podcast here. That's fine. <laughs> I'm sort yeah. of putting you on the spot, so... <laughs> Yeah, so so as Sam mentioned, uh, you know, with, with RSUs, it's basically your com- company's promise to give you shares of stock once you meet certain requirements. 
And so, um, so those requirements, that's called vesting. And so, uh, so, you know, as an example, if you are required to stay at a company for, you know, for four years, uh, the, after the first year, then 25% of your shares could be what's called vested. Um, and so at that point, uh, when you, when you, when your shares are vested, uh, then it's taxable to you as ordinary income. So it's just like you received cash. So some companies this year reduced salaries and offered up replacement um, both in RSUs and in non-qualified um, stock options. I know in some of the companies that we work with, that was something that was commonly offered. And I know there was no negotiation with it. They just offered, you know, it was like a package, like we're, we're cutting salary, but we're going to give you this. And some people had it in their head that a non-qualified stock option was better than an RSU that they were being offered. Would you agree or disagree with that? statement? I mean, I know what I said, but I'm, I'm just curious what, what your opinion is on that. Yeah, with, with RSUs, you're actually, you actually receive shares of stock. And so unless the company, you know, goes bankrupt or <laughs> goes away, um, that, that stock always has some sort of value. Uh, so you get something out of it. So even yeah. if, so there's like no underwater, like there is with a non-qualified stock option, potentially. Exactly. You're taking more risk when you, when you have stock options. So, so we'll lead right into stock options then. <laughs> we'll, we'll start with the, the non-qualified stock options. Um, Meg, would you like to walk through, uh, again, we'll, we'll stick with publicly traded for now and then kind of come back. Would you like to walk through those? Sure. Uh, I, I think the lead in from RSUs is helpful. Um, one, of, one of the ways that you can understand an RSU is that it is a stock option with a $0 strike price. Uh, and that you don't have to hand over any of your own money in, t- in order to get a share of your company stock. Well, with a non-qualified, with a stock option of any sort, you do have to hand over some money. It's called the strike price. Let's say uh, the strike price is $10. When, when you are granted, the, the public company stock is worth $10. If you get a, uh, an option granted to you, the strike price is going to be set at the value of the company stock on that day. So the stock price is worth $10. The, the exercise price is going to be worth $10, which means that at that moment, the option is actually worth nothing to you, has no quote unquote intrinsic value, right? Because you'd have to fork over $10 in order to get a $10 share of stock. Um, but the the real value of any sort of option is, is in the leverage we have in it. And that as you keep the stock option and hopefully the value of the company's stock goes up, that $10 strike price that you have to pay, that stays the same. So the amount of sort of return on that $10 strike price as the stock price goes up, the return on your strike price also goes up. Um, The biggest distinction between non-qualified stock options and incentive stock option isn't the taxation when it occurs and how it's calculated. With a non-qualified stock option, when you exercise, the moment you exercise that option, you owe ordinary income tax on the spread. And what is the spread? The spread is the difference between what the stock's actually worth. You know, in in a public company, you can just look at the stock market. It's what it's selling for at you know in the stock market minus the exercise price. Let's say you have an exercise price of ten bucks. Stock's actually worth hundred. That's a spread of ninety dollars. The moment you exercise that option you owe income tax on $90. That is different from an incentive stock option where you probably don't owe taxes on that $90 spread. And if you do, it's a completely different tax system called the alternative minimum tax, which you totally want to involve a CPA in because (laughs) that is some complicated stuff. 
Um, so NQSOs are in fact very straightforward tax-wise. The moment you exercise, you owe ordinary income tax on the spread. So like- so you just, wanna wait, honestly. Go ahead, yeah. Go ahead. No, so, please. Um, yeah, uh, so when it comes to the, one of the common questions is, okay, well, I've got these options. When do I exercise them? When's the best time to exercise a stock option? Um, and there is this concept, uh, I used the term before, of, of leverage, which um, to not get too technical about it means like, okay, how much value can I really get out of this option? If the strike price is 10 bucks and the stock is worth 11, there's really not much value to that option. You know, you've got that $1 that you can get. But if the strike price is 10 and the stock is worth 100, that's $90 of value, then it's worthwhile exercising. Um, there's some more nuance to it. That is the primary sort of filter of like how much, like what's the multiple I can get back on top of the strike price that I'm paying. Mm-hmm. So hold it until that multiple is pretty, pretty big. And, and, and that was going to be my next question. Like, uh, you know, a lot of times people say, well, when's the best time to exercise the stock option? Is it when I vest or should I hold it, you know, up until maturity, let's say it's 10 years or close to 10 years, you know, when the price has an opportunity to really um, to potentially grow at a, at a higher mm-hmm. value? Or, you know, is there is there a middle ground that um, somewhere in the middle where it makes the most sense for me to exercise that? I, I think, you know, that's one of the most challenging things um, in the especially when you get a, a new client coming on board and they have the existing options to walk through that with them and say, well, what's a what's a good price to exercise these at considering what what it is that they were what that tax consequence is going to be for you. And and in some cases, we're working with people who we see retirement. We think mm-hmm. if the price and there's a big, you know, IF there, if the price can actually carry at the level it's at, you could fund your first couple of years of retirement with that money and have a low, potentially a lower tax bracket. What, what sort of things have you seen with your clients, all of you, that, you know, you, that, that sort of conversation has come up or some, some of the optimal time frame of exercising discussions have come around or even some potential, um, I would say, costly mistakes, if you want to call it that, that people have made over time? I'm going to go in reverse order. Yeah. Go ahead, Chloe. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to say, I, I think, yeah, just working with a lot of a lot of younger professionals um, and mo- majority of my clients have have restricted stock units. And, and so one of the things that I've found, you know, to be super helpful for them is seeing those those shares as an opportunity to fund their their goals, mm-hmm. uh, whatever those financial goals may be. And a lot of my clients, because they are in their 30s or 40s, um, they, you know, they may have student loan debt, uh, you know, they might want to buy their first house um, or, you know, get to the point where they can take a sabbatical. And so so that, you know, just having those shares and, and, and thinking of that as an, using that money as an opportunity to fund some of their goals is mm-hmm. something that, um, you know, is this really valuable to clients, you know, tying that money to a goal. So it's not so much in that situation, it's not so much about this is the optimal like price from a growth perspective, but this is the optimal price from a goal perspective. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And here's the, here's what the taxes are going to look like at that point in time when you do that. Like here's, you know, sort of the consequences. So you can plan for that at the same time. Um, Sam, how about you? What are some of the thoughts that you have? Yeah, I, I was just going to say, uh, I think that we all sort of have this, uh, I guess, holistic and, and really planning approach to equity compensation. And it's not so much 
how can we maximize this only from a numbers perspective? Um, but, you know, how can we, you know, maximize profit as well as value? And in, in, in terms of value, I mean, how, you know, how can we, you know, achieve that life that we really want? How can we do the things that really matter to us using this equity compensation, whether that's paying down your student loans or, um, like Kobe mentioned, taking a sabbatical or buying a home? Um, and so I think that integrating equity compensation into the overall financial plan is, is critical. And, you know, that takes understanding a lot about a person's relationship with money, um, how they grew up around money, their first memory of money. And, and I'd like to think that um, the three of us are really tapping into that side of, of personal finance and understanding um, what really drives someone in, in life in general and, and, and how can equity comp- compensation play a role um, in, in that. I love that. I, I love that you're bringing that up because so many people do focus on getting the biggest bang for that buck as compensation. And that's what they're looking at it, you know, from that angle. And it's it's not tied to sending my kids to college or paying down the student loans or buying the house. It's how how do I maximize the this compensation piece that I'm getting? What dollar figure is going to help me? The, the problem with that that I've always had, and I'm sure you guys too, is that we don't know where the stock price is going to go. <laughs> so we can't we can't say, well, if it goes to 36, do it then because that's where we think the price is going to cap out. Um, you know, we, we just, we just don't have that kind of crystal ball. So, so Meg, from your perspective, what, what are some of the things that you talk to clients about from that, that angle as well? Yeah. So I think Chloe and Sam did a beautiful job talking about sort of the primacy of focusing on the life you want and how the money you can get out of stock compensation can fund the life you want. And that, that is the primary consideration. So I will just talk about some technical considerations uh, that can help make, make the specific decision. Um, one of the lovely things about stock options is that you get to control when you incur the income from the exercise. So that might mean um, next year I'm planning on taking a sabbatical or uh, I'm going to be home, you know, taking unpaid parental leave because I'm going to have my first child, something like that. So your income is going to be really low that year. Mm-hmm. Well, exercising options during that year is a really good idea because your income is going to be lower, which means your tax rate is going to be lower, which means the overall number of tax dollars you're spending on the exercise is lower. So that is one, one consideration for the timing. If your income is really going to change a lot from one year to the next, try to shove some of that income associated with the exercise into a low income year. I'm actually experiencing that. Um, we're working with a lot of Airbnb clients mm. um, right now. And Airbnb is, they promise they're going IPO this year. Um, and some of our clients have, you know, have stock options and they're going to have huge income years in 2021 because that's when all the RSUs will best. I'm telling them, look, wait until 2022 to exercise your non-qualified stock options. Mm-hmm. If you exercise them next year, half of the value is gone to taxes. Mm-hmm. You're just going to 50% tax rate. So that's one technical consideration. Another one is how much of your net worth is tied up in your company stock, right? Again, for my Airbnb clients, we do the calculation. On average, it's you know 80 to 90% of their net worth is tied up in this one company stock. So that might mean that even if you can't get that much value out of your stock option, maybe you want to exercise it anyways, just to lock in some of the money that you can get from your stock compensation. Um, and all the third, the, yeah, and uh, the third, yeah, just one, one, one third technical point, which is um, 
a rule of thumb, if you don't want to think about anything else, is wait until the very last minute to exercise <laughs> your, your non-qualified stock option or your incentive stock option for that matter. Mm-hmm. Wait until the day before the expiration date, right? That's after it expires, you don't own it anymore. But until it expires, if you haven't exercised it, you have not put any of your own money at risk and you are, you, you are building the, the value of the stock option by, by retaining its optionality, like built into the very name of it. Um, so waiting until the last day you can to exercise it is also a perfectly reasonable approach mm-hmm. to timing. And, and going back to that, you know, how much of it is tied up into your overall wealth? You know, some people will ask the question, well, should I actually, should I do a cashless exercise or should I actually buy the shares? And I know for me personally, when I'm talking to clients about that, I go right back to that comment. Well, how much is this going to actually add to your value? And remember, your compens- your normal compensation is part of the, the overall, how much is tied up in your your wealth to a certain extent as, as well. I think often people forget that 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 if they're investing, if they're only invested, say 20% of their overall net worth in a particular company, but that's the company that also pays them, there's actually more invested in that company than just the 20%, right? Um, well, since you sort of mentioned it, Meg, um, let's talk a little bit about when when a private company that that's not publicly traded offers these sort of uh, uh, equity compensation to to their employees. How is that different than a publicly traded company? I think to first order, the answer is it's way riskier. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have stock in a public company, you can go out tomorrow and turn it into grocery money. Just sell it, turn it into cash, do, do whatever you want with it. With a private company, to first order, you can't do that. And I say to first order because there is a growing industry of private secondary markets. You know, a lot of our Airbnb clients, for example, have sold hmm. their Airbnb shares, which they got by way of exercising Airbnb options. They have sold them for cash money on hmm. private secondary markets. Um, but that is that is an expensive market to sell your shares on. It's not transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, and most private companies can't be sold that way. Um, and that's where I think it's really beneficial to get somebody. So, for example, I would not know anything about that just because I'm familiar with RSUs and non-qualified stock options and ESPPs does not make me qualified to give any kind of advice on non-public traded um, stock, uh, you know, equity compensation. And I think it's really important when people are looking, if that's what they're looking for, to really ask the questions about experience. If if a financial planner says, I have experience in working with stock options, dig a little deeper about what type of stock options they have mm-hmm. experience working with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Clay, I'm going to jump to you for a second. Too and ask, you know, what what are some of the the things that you're seeing um, be, maybe before people start working with you or as they start working with you that if they haven't had any advice up to this point that maybe you could say has has gone wrong or could yeah. have gone better. <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is just not doing anything, and so as a result, you know the if they have RSUs, the shares just continue to pile up. Um, or if they have stock options, maybe. And in some cases, people might forget and, and that 10 years does pass by 
and they, they don't, they don't exercise the options and they lose that, you know, that opportunity. Uh, so just, you know, not, not making a decision at all. Um, and, and then, you know, just having those con- what's called a concentrated stock position, uh, which mm-hmm. means that you have a, a large portion of your net worth uh, tied up into you know, one company. Uh, and so, you know, people, a lot of times will prioritize taxes. Um, and so that, that's one of the things I always tell clients. Um, and one of our little industry terms that we say is, you know, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you just want to, you want to make sure that, you know, yeah, I mean, tax, paying taxes is not necessarily a bad thing. That means you made money. And, and so, you know, prioritize you know, your, your life and your goals and, mm-hmm. and what's most important to you over, you know, trying to save so much in taxes. Mm-hmm. I think we do get hung up on that a little bit sometimes, even as financial planners, sometimes I have to remind myself that that's, that's a true statement because, um, nobody wants to pay any more than their fair share. Like that's, you know, don't mind paying taxes. Just don't make me pay more than my fair share. So how do I, how do I make sure that I'm not paying more than my fair share in taxes and, and sometimes holding on too long uh, because of that can end up costing you much more than you would have paid in taxes and losses. Right. So, so Sam, how about you? What are some of the things that you've seen in, in working with clients around these type of, uh, around this type of compensation? I would say where I tend to focus um, quite a bit intentionally with my clients is really just managing expectations. Um, you know, in your accumulation years, um, your cash flow is, is best tied to your base salary, not necessarily investments in your company stock. Um, and so, you know, my wife is it works in, in tech. She's a product designer, and it's a personal preference of, of ours to separate our investment income or investments from equity compensation from our lifestyle. Um, because, it, you know, I, I understand that it's important for us to provide that sort of additional layer of protection, protection against any sort of like stock price volatility. And so we don't depend on stock options or our issues to cover regular expenses. Um, instead, we, you know, we, we sort of air market for flexible goals like going on vacations or buying a dream house or a, a dream car or something like that. And so in that way, we're not really let down if the stock price tanks and our lifestyle wouldn't be largely affected. And that's the, the type of mindset that I, I sort of try to instill in, in, in our clients. Well, they're great points to instill, that's for sure, <laughs> to not depend on it. Um, really, really important that people understand that those could go either either way. Um, Meg, anything in particular on your end that you would say stands out uh, along those lines? Yeah. Uh, One, I will double down on something Chloe mentioned, which was people who work in public companies who get RSUs and have just let them blindly accumulate over the years. Uh, Now, you know, if you work for a company like Amazon, that has turned out to be an excellent oversight, um, but it's not in general best practices. It's a very risky thing to do. And then they end up with this giant bucket of company stock with a lot of taxable gains embedded and they have no idea what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, as we mentioned earlier in different context, just becoming aware of what you have and what your behavior is, um, is key. And I think most mm-hmm. people don't do that until, well, at least the ones who come to us as financial planners don't start doing that until they start working with a financial planner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of sort of mistakes or over, other oversights that I've seen, um, I work with a lot of people in private tech companies who have options um, and they often come to me, say, several years after the options were first granted and they haven't exercised anything yet. Now, I'm the first to say that, like, hey, not exercising options is a perfectly valid and sometimes very smart thing to do because in a private company, any money you put into exercising options 
you are more likely lighting that on fire than anything else. Um, it's a very risky thing to do. But if you're early enough in, uh, if your company's sort of early stage enough, exercising options can be very cheap. You'd be putting very little money at risk um, if you're at an early stage, but because they don't exercise, the company grows in value. And now several years in, exercising options is in fact kind of spendy because what we call the 409A value, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is the sort of internally calculated value of a share of the company's stock it's risen. And so if you exercise this, you know, 14 cent option, the exercise price isn't that high. But if the 409A value is 50 bucks, you're going to be paying a lot in taxes. But if you'd been exercising along the way, you could have already exercised a bunch of those options at a really low cost, but they missed out on that low cost window. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the ways I've sort of the saddest ways I've seen this really affect people is that they kind of want to leave the company, but they've got this huge number of exercisable options that they will lose if they leave the company uh, because you know they've got 90 days after they leave the company to exercise it. So now their choice is, well, do I stay in a job at a company I don't really want to, or do I fork over $100,000 to exercise these options? Neither one of those. So they're, they're, they're between a rock and a hard place. And if they'd been sort of exercising a few every year, maybe staying below some certain tax, you know, income tax Mm -hmm. thresholds, Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be in that bind. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one thing. Yeah. And then just not understanding the tax implications, especially with non-qualified tax, non-qualified stock options. Um, When you exercise them, you owe ordinary income tax. So it comes tax time, April 15th, Mm -hmm. and they get a tax bill for $50,000. And they're like, Mm -hmm. what? I do not have $50,000 just sitting around. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen from that perspective that you just said is that the tax preparers, they get the the 1099 consolidated from, you know, the, the company that there could be a Morgan Stanley, it could be whoever, computer share, whoever is holding the stock options for the company. And they don't look at the W-2 um, and mm-hmm. see that there's a portion on there that's coded as already been taxable. And so the individual ends up paying basically double tax on that because they just don't know. And that's one thing that we have noticed over the years that tax preparers just don't understand to look for that. So that's not even really necessarily financial advising per se, but it's certainly financial awareness for clients to know that if they've if they have a little V on their on their W two right to 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 ask the question like did that just like to make sure that that didn't get double counted for for income purposes. Um, I want to say thank you so much. This this team that I'm interviewing, uh, I should say group of stock option gurus <laughs> that I'm interviewing right now, I specifically reached out to them because the, the um, conversations have been coming about more and more around uh, equity compensation and stock options. And people are very, very confused about them. And different people have different talents around them. And if they don't have experience around stock options, then it can be a risky piece of advice that you're receiving, in my opinion. So I wanted to, to get them together so that they could give you just a little tiny, tiny tidbit of what they can offer for financial planning services if you're looking for an expert in this environment. Uh, and they're located in various parts throughout the country. So for time zone purposes, it's great to have <laughs> diversity from that perspective. Uh, because I know in the morning when Meg is, is just getting up to do her yoga, I've about been halfway through my day. <laughs> and and uh, 
Um, I know Chloe's with me. She's about halfway through her day. And I, I'm so sorry, Sam. I don't remember where you're located. I am in New York. Oh, you're in New York as well. I should yes. have known that. <laughs> um, so, Meg, you're all by yourself out there on the West Coast. <laughs> Is there any final bits of information that you would want people to know either about you or about stock options that's just a be careful type thing? And I'll just go right down through. Meg, how about you? Don't listen to your coworkers. Uh, excellent point. Thank you, Meg. <laughs> <laughs> Chloe, how about you? Yeah, I would say I would say there's two things that I could think of. The first one is just make sure that you you know read and understand your your documents, and if you need help with that, you know get get some professional help. Um, and then also you know work with a, a CPA who understands uh, how stock compensation works. Mm -hmm. And Sam, how about you? I'm gonna go with a blend of what Meg and Chloe said, and that's <laughs> don't listen to your coworkers unless they're referring you professionals who are experts in this space. <laughs> <laughs> If you were in the same room, I'd high five you, Sam. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all so very much for taking time out of your busy schedules and sharing your knowledge. We really appreciate everything that you're putting out into the world. And um, we will have in the show notes a bunch of contact information for each of them, links to their website and their social media and how to get in touch with them. So thanks, everyone. I hope you have a great day. And that will about do it for today's episode of Wine and Dime. You can contact Amy through the website, www.rootedpg.com or amy at rootedpg.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rootedpg for the latest news. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear about, feel free to let us know. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.